Okay, so here we go. November the 21st, 2021, lecture discussion number 155 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. Now, I was going to start something else, but I got this wonderful question that just fits right in today, uh, and that is uh, Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. I hope you're listening. From what I understand, we're having a little problems with Facebook. Is that still true, Dave, or you got that worked out? We're, we're working on Facebook, so everything's good. This is a Facebook uh, question, and uh, of course, I don't know where to ever find them, but Lori finds them, and Dave finds them, and they get them to me at some point. But in any event, uh, Kathleen is asking about germ cell plasm, and, uh, and somatic cells are reproductive cells, and the somatic cells are the other bodily cells, bodily cells. And what she's asking, essentially, what Kathleen is asking, sort of, not quite, but just pretty close, why do animals die uh, by decay or entropic death? You cannot recognize entropy, entropic death. And there's there's two kinds of death, right? There's entropic death, death by decay, or death from an outside force, which, of course, the greatest outside forces are going to be the flood, the noetic flood, and the uh, and the uh, tribulation. And, and to kind of repeat this a little bit, uh, we have disease, Exodus 9.16, uh, that we have the fifth and the tenth plagues of Exodus. That's disease, death by disease. Death by plague, if you want to think of it that way. And what Kathleen is wondering, and she naturally went to this question, it's the Nephilimic question. Um, if death comes through Adam, and of course it does, Romans 5.14, death entered through Adam in mankind and animals. Say that again. Okay, that's good. So we're functioning pretty well. Sorry about that. But uh, let me repeat that. Adam's undeceived fall causes death to enter mankind and animals. It does not enter into the angelic realm because death is already in the angelic realm as God defines it. Rebellion is there. Obviously, sin is there. Again, Romans 5.14, both in mankind and animals. And Kathleen is saying, well, how, how can Adam's sin cause uh, trees and animals uh, to experience entropic death? Now, maybe that makes no sense to anybody. The entire creation groans, Romans 8, 22. Trees wither. Why do trees wither? Plants wither. We see the death of trees by decay, by disease. It's a very similar system. And so she's asking, again, the, the Nephilim and the Jude 6 fallen angels seem to be separated out of the entropic death that is caused by Adam. And, and she wanted to know how this would all work. <sighs> and to repeat, this entire creation that we are in groans. But what is the process that causes trees, plants, and animals to, to uh, die through decay and disease? And again, one's an outside force, one's an interior system. And of course, this gets you into Ezekiel 47.12, which is where we are. So this is how it all fits. Everywhere the living waters go, Ezekiel 47:12, there is resurrection. Everything they touch, everything that every living thing that moves will live, will come back into life. The leaves of the trees will not wither, the fruits will not fail. Uh, we got to obviously compare this living water that's coming out of this fountain that's in Ezekiel from the temple with the uh, water that comes out, in, uh, the living pure water that is in Revelation 22. So ultimately, the question again is, 
how do Nephilim, do Nephilim die? Do they have disease? Do they have death? Well, obviously they do. It can be forced on them from the outside. The flood obviously killed many, many Nephilim. If not, did they go extinct is the other question. How did the sin mechanism get into the Nephilimic, uh, uh, Nephilimic uh, line? That's her question. So that's an excellent question, and, uh, and I wanted to start with that today. And I gave uh, Kathleen just a few things to consider uh, so she can, she can move along. Let me repeat a couple of them. Adam is responsible for mankind and animals. Is he responsible for the trees and the fruit? And we have to ask, how does that process work? So we, that's all I got with it today. Well, I'll have to get into it because it does fit because of the living waters in Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22. So we'll get to it as we go along. But I just wanted to introduce it for everybody at least today. Okay, for obvious reasons, I, I've had a, a tough few days here, right? For obvious reasons, I don't want to go into it because I might not be able to finish uh, or even get going here because it still affects me. Today's lecture will be dissipatory. Uh, which you might call random or sporadic today. I'm just going to go all over the place and maybe tie it together, maybe not. In other words, it's exactly the same as every lecture I've ever done. Uh, we'll just do the best we can. Well, quite a while back, and maybe a few of you remember, on the other side of the board here, I have the unnamed Anna question. And she asked, why is it that we cannot see the living souls of mankind and animals leave at the death of the body? That was her question. She had some video that showed what people thought might be a soul uh, moving through the atmosphere. And I, I don't believe that that's true. I wish it was, but I don't believe it's true. And to be fair, that was not the unnamed Anna's exact question. And once again, I've twisted the question for my own devices. It's part of my diabolical system. And the answers to this question lie in Job chapters 1 and 2. Why can't we see the spirit, the breath of life, the soul, the consciousness, the mind, the non-physical element that is in every living being. We're two parts. We have a body, we have a soul system, our consciousness or the mind, whatever you wish to call it, the spirit. One of them is physical, one of them is not. It's called substance dualism. And, and so... The answer to that question, why we cannot see, why we are not able to perceive the spiritual realm. We can't see angels. We can't see the spirit leave. And the answer again to that is in Job chapter 1 and 2, both chapters. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55. I should put these on the board. I'll do that because I just don't want to rattle them off. I'll leave them here so people can kind of go through them while I'm after it. Okay, Job 1. Job 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 50 through 55. Uh, let's see, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, you'll recognize that one. Uh, Genesis 3.4, obviously. And um, Ezekiel 28.16, which we've done many, many times. Isaiah 14. Five eye wheels of Satan. That's where the answer to this question is. How come you can't see the spirit leave? Because of Job 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, Isaiah 14, Genesis 3, 4, and Ezekiel 28, 16. 
That's what it is. Now, we've, we covered Job 1 and 2 uh, a while back, some time ago. And to cover the, to repeat the main themes of Job 1 and 2, it contains this incredible confrontation between Satan and God, which is obvious by the text, Job 1 6, that it all took place in front of the entire assembly of the angel, angelic realm. So the entire angelic realm gets together gathers itself. Satan and God have this confrontation, this conversation where Satan accuses God of something. And uh, uh, that, of course, is a major event. And it starts out with God essentially has a question. Omniscient God asks a question. So he easily knows the answer. He's omniscient. He says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Remember all of that? And obviously omniscient God knows, duh, that Satan has considered God's servant Job. That's why he asked the question. And Job is this devout man, and he has certainly captured the attention of Satan. Job is blameless and upright. There is none like him on earth who reveres God and shuns evil, Job Job 1.8. That's what God says about him. Satan knew about Job. There's no possibility he didn't. And Satan is challenging God's description of Job. Again, God calls him, there is none like Job on earth. None. And Satan, as expected, is going to challenge God's description of Job in front of the entire angelic kingdom as witnessing all of that. He's essentially asking this question, is Job real? And of course, we have to define real. What is real? What does he mean? Is Job real? And I'm, I'm making, adding my own vernacular to it or vocabulary. Is Job, does Job have free will? That's what he's doing, which takes you back to Genesis 3, 4, right? He's saying that to Eve. Eve, you don't have free will. So it's the same issue. And perhaps the key verses are Job 1, 9 through 11, Satan's retort. He says this, and again, I've kind of changed it. I paraphrase it because I think it's helpful sometimes. Maybe it isn't. Does Job worship you, God, for nothing? That's what he says. Have you not made a protective hedge around Job? That is the accusation. Have you not given Job great blessings and riches? Take away the hedge and Job will curse you to your face. Job will hate you. That is what Satan is saying in front of the entire angelic realm. Both the fallen and the unfallen. And again, I paraphrase Satan's uh, Satan's response to God's question. Have you considered my, my son Job? My servant Job. And I, I did that, of course. It, it, it's my... Uh, Satan's response, again, is an accusatory format. And I wanted to make it obvious that Job 1, 9 through 11 comports with Genesis 1, or 3, 1 through 4. Uh, the point being, yea, a point that the hedge is the central issue. We have this hedge. Or what Satan would call this artificial protective barrier of blessing. That if it takes, if it's gone away, that Job will respond with, with hate. And so you cannot say that he is this blameless and upright man because you have given him every opportunity to be nothing but that. In fact, you have not allowed him to be anything else. So we're going to remove the hedge. 
And that's the point, that the hedge is the central issue. Because you see, the hedge explains the veil, or why we cannot see the soul leave the body that dies. And I know what you're thinking, because why? It's my job to know what you're thinking. What does that mean that the hedge explains the veil? Is that more gobbledygook gibberish from the highly trained religious professional? The hedge explains why we are unable to see the soul or the breath of life leave. I'll make the statement again. What's that? There is an, there's an issue here that we have to figure out. And yes, you're headed in the right direction. The hedge argument from Satan is effectively that God has bought, purchased Job's reverence and devotion. Let me repeat that. With the hedge, therefore, Job's allegiance. If you remove the hedge, you remove the allegiance. Faithfulness or faith or belief in God, therefore, is contaminated. That's what God is saying. I'm sorry, Satan is saying. You have contaminated the belief. It's not real belief. It's not genuine. There's no legitimacy. Remove the hedge. And Job will not believe you. In fact, he'll hate you. He'll curse you. That's the premise. Satan's, that's the Job 1, 9 through 11 supposition of Satan, right? It's exactly the same as Genesis 3, 4 to Eve. It's identical. You just have to be able to see the identicalness. If you can add ness to any word, you get another word. Okay? And that supposition prevailed with one third of the angels. Think about that. One third. Revelation 12.4, Jude 6, Genesis 6.2. Note that Job 1 through 6 and Genesis 6.2 and Genesis 6.4 all use the same word for angel. That's the same word there. In case some of you have difficulty with the cosmologically mixed position on Genesis 6.2 and Jude 6. And that's how Kathleen fits in. See, because Kathleen says, wait a minute, we have a cosmological mixed view of Genesis 6. These are angels and human beings here. And obviously, I hold to the view that the fallen angels perpetrated the horror of Genesis 6, albeit with the full cooperation of mankind. There's a co-conspiracy here between mankind and fallen angels. And so I am saying that these the sons of God are, are angels, and they saw the daughters of men, and something happened that produced an epilemic race. Now, how we explain that is another condition completely. Is it complicated? Absolutely, it's complicated. What would you expect of the Bible? But there, there are solutions. Of the three kingdoms, I'm going to add the animal kingdom here because of all of this. Of the three kingdoms, the angelic kingdom, the animal kingdom, and the human kingdom, the animals were innocent. I can't say that enough. Knowing that is very, very important. That's Ecclesiastes 3.18. And as we have discussed previously all of that, as you know, it would seem that the evil angelic and evil humanity, I have two groups that are evil and one that's innocent, right? It was assumed to be logical that the two that are evil or the two that have sin would both get together, wouldn't they? And what would they do to the one that is innocent? What would you expect them to do? It seemed expected that the evil angelic and the evil humanity, the collaboration of Genesis 6, might undertake a conspiratorial enterprise. And that enterprise would be to not only corrupt all of mankind, which they did. We know they did it because we know how many didn't get contaminated. We know that was at least seven. Some might think eight, but be careful there because we have Goliath. Never mind. 
for today. But I'm suggesting that the, the evil angelic realm, the sons of God, the Jude six that left their heavenly estate, first thing they did is get involved with the evil men. Now you asked, did they get involved with the evil women? Well, the Bible seems to say it did. And the production of that alliance produced this Nephilimic race. And the whole point of the, of, I believe that they tried to corrupt the animal kingdom genetically as well. Why wouldn't they? Why would they not try to destroy everything God did? It seems logical to me that they would, and they're incredibly intelligent. The human beings are incredibly intelligent. They're, they're new. They're highly functional human beings. We have a tendency to think that they're all stupid because why? Because we're stupid. That's exactly right. We have no idea. You, you, you look at what they were able to do. Noah builds this, builds a ship. I, I mean, in amazing. The technology it required, just buoyancy and, uh, and pressure. And, and, and yes, just ridiculous amounts of skill here. To put it in a different way, it's it, it's pretty obvious to me that the animal kingdom was genetically impacted just like the human. In fact, I'm suggesting that the animal kingdom was impacted first, right? The experimentation would be done on the animals, wouldn't it? They are what's exactly happening today genetically all over the world. We have countries all over the world. I could name them all, but I won't. China. We have countries all over the world that are messing around genetically with things that are incredibly destructive and they're testing animals in ways that are frighteningly obscene. And so uh, pretty much what Luke 17:26 said would happen at the end of the age. I could rant about this, but I won't. Genetic manipulation is an evil act, Luke 17. Okay, have you been able to attach the heads to the reason we cannot see the soul leave the body? Are you satisfied with your position? Let me add Genesis 28.12. It comes into play now. Why can't we see the soul leave the body? What's that have to do with the hedge? Genesis 28:12 are the angels ascending and descending on the ladder that is Christ. The ladder is Christ, he is also standing over the ladder and the, excuse me. Oh, and the angels are ascending and descending between earth and heaven on Christ. We also have Luke 16:22. And you know that's because that is Lazarus, the beggar. Lazarus, the beggar, being carried by angels at his death. Keep in mind that Luke 16.22, those were words spoken by Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty himself in the flesh, the Word made flesh. He says that at Lazarus' death, angels carried him. Genesis 28.12, latter. Christ reveals that angels carried Lazarus, the beggar. Very important piece of information or evidence. Obviously, we know that Christ is in authority. So, who saw the angels take Lazarus? Clearly, the only one that saw it was Christ. How would he see it? Why is he the only one that knows? In the sense that he knows. Christ is in authority over time. We know that. That's an obvious thing. 
And being the God of creations, uh, of all creation, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, John 1, 1 through 4, Jesus Christ can see everything motionless. Remember that lecture. Being outside of time gives him the ability to see things stopped, all things stopped. And he also gets to see all things motion. My point is, yay, another point, page four. That we should never know the spirit of Lazarus would be carried by angels. We would never know that unless he told us. Because we can't see it. We might hope. We might think it's likely. But we can't know it. And of course, the saliva of dogs has antiseptic properties. Antimicrobial enzymes. And note that dogs came and licked the sores of Lazarus the beggar. Why did they do that? Did they do it naturally? Or did they just come? Why did God put that information in there? Why did he say, why did Christ say in front of the Pharisees that dogs came and licked the sores of Lazarus? So we have dogs and angels coming to Lazarus. Why did God mention this? Because uh, One reason is because the Pharisees hated dogs. They hated dogs. Uh, which is all one needs to know about the Pharisees. <laughs> Once you know that about the Pharisees, you know there's problems here. They're the brood of Satan, Matthew 23:33, and they hate dogs. Now, I'm not surprised by that. It's always occurred to me that uh, to be very suspicious of people that hate dogs or animals in general. The Bible even says so. People that are violent to animals are, are sick people. So, have you completed the equation? Because I've given you lots of pieces here and trying to tell you about the heads, right? Have you, have you got it? There's math. There's always math. So you have to kind of put all the pieces together. If you added all the pieces up, I guess is what I'm trying to say. As always, I have left out something just to make it difficult because if you don't have all the information, then you can't get the equation right and therefore you need me, right? Yeah. No, you don't need me. You'll be fine. I left out the four winged living creatures. Note that I said four. Those are the cherubim of Ezekiel 1, 1 through 15. And it, where it says... The living creatures ran back and forth like a flash of lightning. The Hebrew word that's translated living creatures, Hawaiyot. H-A-Y-Y-O-W-T. In Ezekiel uh, 1.5. And of course they're called beasts by the old King James many times, but not here. They're called living creatures here. 1.14 and 1.5 of Ezekiel. Uh, beasts at uh, Isaiah 35.9 and alive at Leviticus 14.4. So we see this word translated differently again and, and I can't repeat that enough. This word has multiple meanings and you have to get its exact meaning from the context. Anyway, not enough of that. Bringing us to Genesis 1.30 eventually though because this is a very important verse and it's almost always misrepresented in your translations. And here's another place where this word that is Ezekiel 1.5 is at. 
every beast of the earth. He's saying this to Adam and Eve. He's saying, you're going to be in dominion. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on, creeps on the earth, in which, let me put that on the board, in which there is a living soul. You're going to have authority. You're going to have responsibility over every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth. Now notice the sea creatures aren't involved here. In which there is a living soul. You are responsible for the living soul animals. That's what he's saying to Adam and the woman. Genesis 1.30. And Genesis 1.30 follows Genesis 1.29. That's a level of exegesis that is amazing, isn't it? 1.30 comes after 1.29. Again, that's why I get the huge amounts of money that I get. Because I am an expert. Genesis 1.29 is this fantastic behold. Now there's many Bibles that don't have behold there. But behold belongs there. God said, behold, I have given you, Adam and the woman, every beast, every bird, everything that creeps in which there is a living soul. And it was so. And those words were spoken by God. He says there's a living soul in these Creatures that I have made. And you have to know that. You have to know that that's the important part of the sentence right there. In which there is a living soul. Adam, do you got it? Do you have? Do you understand that inside these that I'm giving you, there is a living soul? And again, those words spoken by God who breathed the living soul into the men and those the mankind and the woman and, and also the animals. He's the giver of the life and breath. Acts 17.25 now, we can see the body manifestation of the living soul that's in these animals. We can see it because we have the physical manifestation of the breath of life by, by the body. I'm moving my hands. That's a manifestation of my consciousness. My consciousness is electrified. It looks at my brain, electrifies the brain, reads the brain, and makes me do things that I want to do. And you can see my body's representation of what my mind is doing. Okay? Obviously, my mind is not perfect. So we can see the body represent the mind, the soul, the livingness, the consciousness, but we cannot see the breath of life itself. John 4.24, Colossians 1.15. And we do not see the breath of life return to him who gave it, Ecclesiastes 12.7. We don't get to see that. Why not? Because of the hedge argument. Let me put argument or hedge accusation. That would be better. We are not seeing this process because of the hedge accusation. So that begs the question, and now you can answer it without me. What if we did see it? What would Satan say? You have eliminated free will, he would say. I'll explain that in a moment. Why does God hide this truth of the soul leaving the body from us? What about Matthew 13:29, Matthew 13:41, Revelation 4:8? 
What about all of that? Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, I have not just four-winged cherubim, I have six-winged seraphim. So I ask the obvious question there. Why do I have six-winged seraphim? Why do I have four-winged cherubim? His six wings, if they had a race between the seraphim and the cherubim, which one would win? Would six wings beat four wings? How fast is light? Is my next question. How fast are the seraphim who move like lightning and the cherubim who move like lightning, how fast do they transport a soul? How long does it take them to get the soul? When the, when the soul leaves the body, they're there and they take it. How long does it take them to deliver it? How fast are they? Obviously, they're fast enough that we can't see them. And But why is this the way it's done? Again, because of the hedge accusation. God is rebutting the hedge accusation, the hedge argument at Job 1 and Job 2. He's rebutting that hedge argument at the deaths of all of these in which there is inside a living soul. As you know, my beloved Abigail died. I did not see the soul leave the body. Did I want to? Absolutely, I did. I wanted that more than anything you could imagine. But we don't get to see that because of that argument. Which is why instant heaven. Instant heaven for children and animals. How does that fit? You're going, what? What? How did, how did this weird person leap from... We don't see the we have the hedge argument. We don't see the 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 soul at, at the death. And remember, people have tried to measure it. They've done it. They've weighed a body and before and after immediate death. Now, of course, air has weight. They don't understand that kind of thing, but that, or they didn't at the time. But I'm saying we, this is all why there is instant heaven for children and animals. Obviously, it would be economical to assemble all things that are instantaneous in Scripture and put them together. I am saying that the soul being transformed, I'm sorry, being trans, transmitted, if you were transported, that's the word I wanted. The soul's being transported is an instantaneous event. I'm also saying that children and animals are in, have an instantaneous uh, position in heaven in the sense that at their death, they're gone and instantly in heaven. There is no delay. There is no travel time. The seraphim and the cherubim move really fast. All angels do. So, like I said, we should go find all things instantaneous in Scripture and put them together. And that's why I began the seemingly disconnected traits that I'm on here by citing Thessalonians 4.16. What is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16? What is 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55? It's instantaneous time right there, right? That is the abduction of the bride, the taking up of the church, Revelation 4, 1 through 2, and it is instantaneous. He says so. The removal of the church is beyond sudden. It's, keep in mind the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is not subject to time. Remember me saying that? How fast can he move his church when he's not involved in time at all if he doesn't want to be? 
That means, of course, he can move himself and his church, the saved, at a speed that is outside of time. Time cannot be applied to Christ. That's a difficult concept. I concede that. Everybody thinks that he is in, he's subject to time because he walked the earth. He's not. And again, you may not understand that, but it's, it's the truth. It's the status. It's the condition, if you will, of the situation. Obviously, Jesus Christ, who is the primal light of life, John 8.12. He is the non-particle, non-photon light that causes all life. Clearly, the primal light has what kind of velocity? Infinite velocity. Because it's outside of time. That explains why time is eliminated with respect to Christ. He's the light of life. Time has, as a measuring mechanism, has no application to infinity. So let's look at Revelation 4.1. It's very important, I think. People fight over Revelation 4.1. By people, I mean biblical scholars, supposedly. They don't like uh, 4.1 or 4.1 and 2. They just can't stand it. Uh, not all of them. Everyone that agrees with me, I like. I'm kidding. There might be one person out there that I don't agree with that I like. I'll let you know. See, John is taken to the throne room of heaven in John, uh, Revelation 4, 1 through 2. Oh, and as an aside, those who discount the verses of, of Revelation 4, 1 through 2 is not applicable to the, to the rapture, the abduction of the bride, which is Matthew 25, 1 through 13, and Revelation 3, 10, and John 14, 1 through 3. If you think that he's not, that the bride is not being discussed, the church is not being discussed in Revelation 4, 1 through 2, I'm going to give you evidence that it is. The commentators who cast out Revelation 4, 1 through 2 as attaching to the church being raptured, um, they disregard a bunch of things. John would know that it were, that it is because he wrote 14, John 14, 1 through 3 and Revelation 3, 10 and Revelation 4, 1 through 2. He wrote those three things. He knows. He knows that they comport. All harmonize. The Holy Spirit through, through John wrote it all down. Wrote all three verses. And the commentators, again, that cast out and say Revelation 4 has nothing to do with the church being raptured. Why are you idiots? They neglect that there's an important clue there. The instantaneous, timeless aspect of the event. John is called up into heaven. How fast does he go? What does it say? It's instantaneous. It's an instantaneous reference. So put all of your instantaneous aspects together. They're all timeless. And, and you add to the fact that the, that the earth church is absent from the book of Revelation. It's, it's the whole book of Revelation, as I've said many times. Revelation 1 is all about church. Revelation 2, all about the church. Revelation 3, all about the church. Revelation 4, 1 through 2, I have an instantaneous event. And the church isn't mentioned again until Revelation 19. Now, John knew that. And again, he wrote uh, John 14, 1 through 3. He wrote Revelation 3, 10. He wrote Revelation 4, 1 through 2. And of course, the church is gone for the entirety of the tribulation. So the point is, yea, a point, page 8. 
God does certain things outside of the confines of time. And we, you should go find all of them and put them all together and understand that they relate. And that is why we cannot see the soul leave the body of death. How are you going to see something that is outside of time? God instantly brings children to himself. They are not subject to accountability. They are declared, pronounced, innocent. Animals also are immediately brought to their creator. They are also proclaimed innocent. Romans 5.14, Genesis 3.21. And for that matter, the whole of the Levitical sacrificial structure blares it, trumpets it out, blasts this qualification, this eligibility of animals to be acceptable portraits of Christ for the atoning of sin. Now, it's a temporary system, the Levitical system, but it is a type of the permanent system, the, the atoning blood of Christ. An animal's blood is acceptable. That tells you they're innocent. Now, to repeat the argument from earlier lectures, all of the three kingdoms, the angelic, the animal, and the human, only the animal kingdom is unimpeachable with respect to rebellion to, to God. They did not defy, they did not revolt, they did not accuse God, they did not repudiate God, they do not disrespect God, they did not choose evil. That's the one kingdom that did none of those things. Those attributes that I just rattled off, the rebellion, the defying, the revolting, the accusatory, the repudiation, the disrespect, the choosing of evil, that's confined to the angelic kingdom and the human kingdom. And that's an important piece of information. And as with children, all children, animals are transmitted to God's presence at a speed that cannot be comprehended. Why we can't see it? Because you have to be outside of time. And we're never going to be outside of time. You want to think of it this way. Every time an animal or a child dies, time is suspended and they're moved. In a suspended time. It's instantaneous. And, and, and again, I'm aware, because it's my job to think like everybody else, I'm aware of those who object. I, and I read them. I really want to know why, uh, why they think the way they think, because I want to know. They, they want to know if the unsaved, they know, they agree with me, because why? Why would they agree? Because I'm right, duh. But they 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 usually ask me if the unsaved are transported instantly also. And this is a discussion of the intermediate state of the soul, mind, consciousness of the unsaved as opposed to the saved. And there are similarities. The saved saved are we the saved are subject to the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat. Second Corinthians five ten. 1 Corinthians 9.24, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, 2 Timothy 2.8, 1 Peter 5.4, Revelation 2.10, 1 Corinthians 3.15. Those are a discussion of crowns. And we go to the judge of the saved, go and stand before the judge, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Revelation 2.10 is the crown of life, for example. 1 Corinthians 3.15 describes those who stand before Christ at the judgment seat and their life's work, all of us, our life's work is going to be subject to scrutiny by the omniscient judge 
who of all things, John 5.22, Revelation 2.23, Christ searches the mind and the heart of all mankind. So we're going to stand before him and he is going to, uh, we're going to be on trial. The saved. The trial of the living, if you want to think of it that way. That's good news. We're going to go to the trial of the living. That means means what? We're in the living category, as God defines living. At the judgment seat of Christ, the lives of the saved will be judged. If your work endures, you will receive a reward or a crown. If your work is burned, if it's worthless, you will suffer loss and shame. But you yourself, the Bible said, will be living. You will be saved. It's all about what endures. What endures? What are you doing that endures? I have built a lot of houses. How many of them are going to last through the tribulation? This one? I'm kidding. What endures? It's Ecclesiastes 3.22. That's the end of Ecclesiastes 3.18-21. 3.22 talks about what endures. The unsaved are not in the presence of Christ. They are waiting for their trial. Uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. They do not go to the judgment seat of Christ, the trial of the living. They go to the trial of the dead. The second death trial. Not good news. Pick your trial. The intermediate state of the unsaved dead are held that intermediate state, the unsaved dead are held in Sheol, or what we would call hell. Some would call it Hades, but mostly it is hell. Hell is a temporary prison. It's a pretrial facility. You want to think of it that way. The evil rich Pharisee, Luke 16, uh, 14 through 31, was in hell, Luke 16:23, awaiting the great white throne of Revelation 20:11, the trial of the dead. So, are the unsaved also instantly brought to hell? Ezekiel 28:19, in my opinion, describes the Antichrist. Having Ezekiel 28 describes not just the Antichrist, but it also describes Satan. So you have to figure out what part of it is Satan, what part is the Antichrist as you go through it. I'm proposing that 28:19 describes the Antichrist. He makes a brief journey into hell. As after he is killed. And that happens before he and the false prophet are resurrected and cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 19.20. So I want you to think about what's going on there. Why does Christ do this? Why is the Antichrist and the false prophet killed? They're the first ones killed. Remember me saying that? Killed, dead. And their whole army goes into shock and they run, they try killing each other. They run around in panic and they're slaughtered. Why does the Antichrist and the false prophet sent to hell after that death? And then they're resurrected out of hell because they're cast alive into the lake of fire. So they become the first fruits of the second death. So they're killed. They're resurrected. I'm sorry. They're resurrected. They're sent instantly. Notice how I've answered the question. They're sent instantly to hell where people that are in hell marvel that they are there. How did you get here? You're here too. And then they're resurrected out of hell and they're cast into the lake of fire and they're the first two occupants. They're the first fruits of the second death. 
And so I sort of answered the question, didn't I, that uh, are the unsaved also instantly brought to hell? And you don't see the soul leave the unsaved any more than you see the soul leave the saved. And I propose the reason is the same, because it rebuts the hedge accusation and it moves outside of time. It's an outside of time event. And obviously, there's a great truth about this process of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And and I noticed the, the proximity of what they do to Christ himself. His journey. He comes out of the tomb and he goes to the confinement area of the fallen angels, doesn't he? So, in other words, his body is in the tomb and he goes and makes a proclamation. Uh, Jude 6, uh, Genesis 6, fallen angels. And Christ issues his proclamation to these fallen angels during the three days and three nights of his entombment. And then he he resurrects. That's when he runs into Mary and Thomas, ultimately, right? You can't touch me, but you can. Because he's going to ascend into heaven. And it seems like he's imposing a similar thing on the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're following a process that, that has a similarity towards his. And I suspect that that's what he's doing purposely. It's intentional. And I note that that if the and if the imprisoned angels are in hell, let me check the clock. Good, good. If the imprisoned angels are in hell, as opposed to Revelation nine, demons in the abyss, we have we have angels in the abyss and we have angels in hell. Two different places. And we have mankind also in hell. So if I have angels in hell and mankind in hell, and I also have angels in the abyss that are going to be unlocked, Revelation 9, they're going to come out and kill a whole bunch of people. Uh, Why do I have all of that? What's he doing? But one thing you can see is that the wicked of mankind and the wicked of the angels, the fallen angels, they're intermingled. They're together. They're going to be together in the lake of fire, and they're together now. Now that's interesting to me. That explains Hebrews 12.22, right? What we call Hebes 12.22. You can drop the S if you want. Hebes 12.22 completely reports that the faithful angels will be residents of the city of the living God. So the faithful angels are going to be in the new city of Jerusalem and the saved are going to be in the new city of Jerusalem. And the animals are going to be in the new city of Jerusalem. And that's not the first time that's happened. So I have this, this congregation of three different kingdoms all put into the new city of Jerusalem. Hebrews 12.22 makes it very clear. Concretely reports that the faithful angels are going to be living in the city of the living God. The new Jerusalem. Same as the saved of mankind and the animals. The angels that reside in the new Jerusalem will be a number that only God knows. That's how many. The number cannot be calculated by created beings. The angels will never know how many angels are there. Mankind will never know how many mankind is there. And the animals don't care. They don't care if they count or not. They might be able to count. We know they're going to be significantly increased in capability. So you have the numbers of the angelic realm 
the animal realm and the human realm that are in the new city of Jerusalem are individually and collectively incalculable. That's Revelation 5.11. That's Revelation 5.13. That's Revelation 5.9. That's Acts 10.11-15. That's Revelation 7.9-17. Everything that we've covered in the last few weeks. So I have three groups. All of, the, all of them cannot be calculated. So obviously the overall number of occupants that are in the New Jerusalem are beyond the possibility of a census-taking system. With the exception of God, he's the only one that knows the number. Why wouldn't he, If he's the only one that knows the number, why doesn't he reveal it? He doesn't reveal it. Why not? Only God can count this number. Only God can know it. That reminds you, I hope, of Second Samuel 24, where David tries to do a census. How did that go? So what is the relationship between Second Samuel 24 and the new city of Jerusalem with regard to calculating the numbers? Uh, uh, imagine this for a moment. The city is filled, filled with three groups of uncalculable number of living beings. It is filled with that. Filled. Did I say filled enough? Let me write filled. Because every time I write filled to the brim, if you want to think of it, it's filled to the overflowing, but it's not. It's not filled to the overflowing, but it's filled. Genesis 1.28, Genesis 9.1. He's repeating Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 9.1 in the New Jerusalem. Be fruitful and multiply, he says. Fill the earth. And this is what happening, this, this multiplication is what causes a lot of the angelic response to Genesis 6-1, which is Kathleen's question. Hi, Kathleen. It also, so that fits into this line of discussion, but we're going to save that for another time because I am running out of time. Anyway, for today, consider the implications of a city that houses three groups of living beings that cannot be counted. Immediately, you've got to remember that the new Jerusalem, the new city of Jerusalem, uh, <laughs> Revelation 21.16 is approximately 1,500 miles high. Remember me saying that. The International Space Station, to repeat that, is only 250 miles in the atmosphere, outside the atmosphere into space. This building is 1,500 miles. Now, approximately, now I'm going to get more specific about that in a minute. And to repeat from a previous lecture, the new city of Jerusalem has its own gravitational system, its own atmospheric framework. It is essentially fundamentally one thing. It is a gigantic, thank you for that, it is a gigantic Garden of Eden. That's what it is. He's repeating it. It's what he does. Where do you suppose God would place his approximately 1,500 miles wide by approximately 1,500 miles deep by approximately 1,500 miles high gigantic Garden of Eden? Where do you think he puts it? Duh. If you guessed the exact location of his millennial temple, you get a cookie. Where is his millennial cookie? Or I'm sorry, millennial temple, Ezekiel 40 through 48. Where did he put the millennial temple? Ezekiel 20, 40, Isaiah 2, 2, Zechariah 14, 16. Where did he put it? Because he's going to put Eden in the same place. The millennial temple goes someplace. Eden goes in the same place. Obviously, duh, again, the millennial temple mountain has a relationship to the new city of Jerusalem. He puts a city that's this high on a mountain that's the only mountain 
in the millennium. I believe. Now, some have proposed the exact location of the tree of life. They say that's where he's putting it, right on top of the tree of life. Genesis 2.9. Uh, others say Genesis 2.7. Others say Genesis 3.21 is where he sacrificed the animals. Well, where did he sacrifice the animals becomes a question. Genesis 2.7 is outside of Eden, as you know. Genesis 2.8 tells you that. You get to decide for yourself where he's putting it. Because he's got a spot. I have no interest in controlling you and your conclusions. You get to free will decide whatever you want here. And, and just in case you think I'm being altruistic, I'm actually limiting my liability. So, okay, where was I now? There is 139 million square miles of ocean on the earth currently. 139 million. And we know, Revelation 21.1, that there will be no more oceans. None on the new restored earth. There won't be any oceans. Currently on this earth, almost 60 million square miles of land, mountains, and desert. And we know there will be no more mountains, no more islands, no more desert. There'll be no more islands because there's no more seas. None on the renewed earth. Revelation 16:20. If the resurrected earth remains the same size, and that's a big if, but let's say it remains the same size, approximately 200 million acres of land, beautiful lush land and, and the pure river of the water of life, Ezekiel 47 is a type of that. And I hope you understand, uh, I hope you see that it's my opinion that the pure river of the water of life will flow throughout the entire 1,500 mile up and down and out and around, it'll just go everywhere in that new Jerusalem. And it will flow out of the new city of Jerusalem onto the resurrected earth. It's what it'll do. Now, notice that I'm assigning resurrection to the new earth. Because I think that makes sense. I think that it's in the same sense as 1 Corinthians 15:35 through 58 which explains the glorified incorruption of the resurrected bodies of the saved, of the animals and the saved, the redeemed. I will argue that there is an, a correspondence here, that the compatibility is intentional. He is resurrecting the earth from death, isn't he? The earth is groaning in death. He's going to resurrect the earth and he's going to change it, but it's going to be the same earth. He doesn't make new things. Creation is over. It's about resurrection now. He's resurrecting the earth. Okay, who's leading this small band of intrepid explorers we call Cliffside? Who knows? Where are we now? The new city of Jerusalem. And, and there's my clock going off, but I hope I got time. I'm going to replace my 300-story position. I said there's 300 platforms, but there's more positions than that. Thank you. There's a 700 Edens view at this time also uh, that's out there. And I looked at both of them. I, I went with the 300 because of the math. But the math is imprecise. Keep in mind that the Greek word for Revelation 21.16 is not furlong. Your Bible will say furlong. It's actually a Greek stadia or stadion. It's not miles. It's not furlong. Furlongs are 660 feet. And it says there's 12,000 stadia. By 12,000 stadia, by 12,000 stadia. So it's 12,000 stadia wide, 12,000 stadia deep, 12,000 stadia high. A stadia is about 607 feet. A mile has 8.69 stadia, or 8.38, depending on who you want to do the math with. There's always math again. 
we're, we're probably made of math. I'll get to that in some other. Humans and animals, we, we look like math. Angels, probably math. Bunch of math. So you better get, get used to that. Okay, I'm going to attempt to be a little tiny, teeny more accurate than usual. The 700 Edens view has approximately 24,000 stadia of structure and land and atmosphere per Eden, per structure, per platform, per story, per level, whatever you want to think. So in other words, I'm saying there's two and a half miles total per level of depth. Two miles if you want to be, you want elementary calculations. And I should admit that there's a possibility of non-uniformity or dissimilarity. In other words, dissimilitude. I could have a two and a half mile depth of one story. And the next story could be five miles. The next story could be one mile. I don't know if there's uniformity with respect to the depth of the height of the atmosphere in each of the evenings. Keep that in mind. I'm just saying there's 700. That's the bottom line for today. The fallen earth has about 30 million square miles of habitable land. That's all that's there. Now, again, there's not going to be any oceans, so there's not going to, they're always going to have rivers. All the land is going to be habitable, or most of it is, including the, the rivers. The New Jerusalem, to give you an idea, the fallen earth today has 30 million square miles of habitable land. And your definition of habitable includes Alaska. Be careful about that. What is it, 10 below every morning here now? Okay, the New Jerusalem is going to have 1.6 billion square miles. That's a lot. And it's going to have, the, the earth right now has 19 billion acres of habitable acreage. Again, you've got to include Alaska. But uh, the New Jerusalem will have 1 trillion acres. And each acre, of course, is 43,560 square feet. One trillion of those parcels in this structure. What's he doing? Considers that, that birds generally fly within 5,000 feet. Now, I know some of the geese, they get up there, the migratory birds, they get up there in the, in the, in the wind, and they can get up as many as 20,000 feet or higher. Predation occurs a 1,000 feet or less. So birds will go about to where predation Ceases. That's where they'll fly when they're migrating. Why do they migrate? Who tells them to migrate? Who communicates with them and says time to migrate? How do they all know? Where do they get the telegram? Phone call? Who's telling them to do these things? Why do they do it? It's amazing. Will there be migratory birds in the New Eden? What do you think? Will they migrate around? Will they have to? Will there be seasons changing? There will be no season changing. Those of you who think they're skiing... No, skiing's terrible. It's cold. Are you crazy? You break your leg. You're going to hit a tree. No skiing. Yay. Us in Alaska, people like me, we just want warm. Just give me warm. Okay. Also know that the Congo River is the deepest in the world. It's less than a thousand feet. You know, blue whales, they dive a thousand feet. Some whales, 1500 feet. Sharks can get down to a mile. But there's no light in the Congo River. Now, you think that's, he's going to make rivers that there's no light in them? Not going to happen. We don't know how deep the rivers are. The whole point of it is that two and a half miles of, of structure, including atmosphere and depth uh, of soil, seems like it's going to be plenty fine for 700 platforms. 
So how deep, how wide will the pure river of water be? The answer is going to be deep enough and wide enough and all the sea creatures will be fine. He's very smart, this guy, that's building this building. It has the, It's already made. I believe that the, uh, the new city of Jerusalem and the lake of fire were made at the same time, put side by side. You pick. Again, the resurrected earth will have 200 million square acres and, uh, and it'll have... 128 billion acres of rivers and land. It's amazing. That's the resurrected earth. And then we have the New Jerusalem on top of that. So there's plenty of room for all the mice and all the rabbits. Uh, and all of that refutes the argument of Satan's hedge. The New Jerusalem and the fact that we can't see this, the soul refutes that hedge accusation, which has prevailed for centuries. Okay, I'll leave it there. You figure it out. And we'll be here next week. Lord willing, and the creeks don't rise.